Good morning. We started this series last week called In the Know, as you can see over here to your left. And uh, basically, the idea is we're going through the book of 1 John, and we're discovering uh, through these eight week, this eight-week process how you can know you're in the know. And we get this idea from um, 1 John, and John himself writes in chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so we came up with this series called In the Know. And so for the next eight weeks or so, uh, hopefully what you're going to be seeing through this series is little ways to uh, evaluate whether or not you are in the know or not in the faith. Are you in the family of God or are you not? Hopefully along the way you'll get some sweet assurance that you are. And uh, it is wonderful to have assurance at times. Have you ever felt the need to have some reassurance? I remember about two years ago, it was when the San Francisco Giants won the first World Series. And, the, and that's how I remember this, because I was watching uh, the last game against the Philadelphia Phillies, and the ninth inning is happening, and basically if we get three outs, we go to the World Series, which at the time would have been the first time in 50, 50 years uh, potentially winning a World Series. And... And so I'm watching the ninth inning, and as I'm watching the ninth inning, the uh, room begins to spin a little bit. Um, it's spinning, and, and then it starts spinning faster, and, and I'm having con problems concentrating on the TV. And, of course, we win that game. We go to the World Series, and I say, okay, time to get up. And as I get up, I can't walk straight. My wife's helping me, or I'm touching walls. And uh, obviously, she drove me home. I laid down, and I said, um, boy, that's kind of odd, but I'll go to sleep. Forget about it. And, um, you know, in the morning, it'll be gone. So that's exactly what I do. I go to sleep, wake up in the morning, open my eyes to what I'm hoping is a room that is staying still, and I see the ceiling moving. And it's moving even faster than it was moving last night. And so I said to myself, well, there's a problem here, uh, because this has never happened to me before. Usually I can see straight, and now everything's spinning and moving. And so I had my wife call for me, Kaiser, and, and, and uh, got an appointment with whatever doctor was available to see me. And of course, somebody had to drive me there, drop me off. I'm walking through the hallways of Kaiser, and I'm one of these people who's like touching the walls, trying to, you know. I get to the, the counter, and the lady's asking me where my appointment is. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know. I can't see. I can't see the letters in the hallways. I just need to get to this doctor by this time. And so they helped me get to the doctor. And finally, they put me in a room. I get in the room, and the room is spinning. Everything's spinning so fast. It's easier for me just to fold my arms and put my head in my arms and, and just close my eyes. And that's the position I took because it was just so, everything was just spinning so fast. Finally, the doctor comes in and he says, uh, Mr. Hurtado, what's going on? I said, well, I was watching the game last night and all of a sudden the room started spinning. Thought it'd go away. Woke up this morning and now it's spinning faster. And I goes, okay, I see so you have an issue of vertigo. I said, yeah. Um... And he says, is there anything else I should know? I go, yeah, um, my father died of a brain tumor. And my mother died of stomach cancer. And without skipping a beat, he said, oh, okay, so you think you have a brain tumor. <laughs> and uh, I told him, quite frankly and honestly, and scared out of my mind, hey, you know what? When you've been through what I've been through, it doesn't seem that far-fetched. And so he said, okay, let's get you a scan. Which was like the most gracious thing the man could have done for me. If we're going to get you a scan today. And they went, sure enough, they rolled me into this room. They get a scan of my head. Within an hour, he was able to look at the, um, 
at the, uh, the, the x-ray and say, David, not only do you not have a brain tumor, you have the most beautiful brain in the world. I've never seen, never seen a brain that's so beautiful and, and smart. And it's like, how can you tell from the scan that I'm so smart? But in all honesty, um, you know, from, since boyhood, I always thought I would die of a brain tumor. Your mind does that to you. You just thought, you're going to die of this. That's what your dad died of. And it was the most gracious thing you could do to take the picture. And not only that, but it did, it did show that my head is big. As you can see, I have a big head. And, and I don't want to scare you because it's totally normal from here, but, but I have what they call an arachnoid cyst. Well, th- all that means is I have a little pocket of water in my brain that my skull developed around. And it's very normal for my anatomy. Just some people have them. If you have a big head, you probably have one. Okay, and uh, what ended up happening was they put me on this schedule to get two more scans, and with, by the end of the year, they confirmed with all certainty that there's nothing going on wrong with my head, and, and it is still beautiful, and, and I'm not going to die of brain tumor. And so along the way, I got this wonderful reassurance. Man, here's a boyhood fear that was just eliminated. It felt so good. It felt so calm. It felt the peace of mind. Uh, felt assurance. And uh, that is what God wants for you. That's why John is writing in the book of 1 John. He wants to have you have the assurance that you know, I am in the family of God. I am an authentic believer. I am a true Christian. I do, in fact, believe in Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure that you know that you're in the know. And that's what we've been looking at, and we're going to look at it again today, and we'll look at it again for the next eight weeks. John wants to give you assurance as it relates to your salvation. He wants to assure you that you are a genuine believer, and that all this that you've been doing isn't for naught. And this road and this path is going to head somewhere one day called heaven. And he wants to give you that assurance. And the way he's going to do it today is by describing four characteristics that God produces in the life of a believer. Four characteristics that God produces in the life of a believer. You might remember last week I started to touch on this. When, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, it's a miracle that it happens in the first place. You're blinded you, you, by your sin. You cannot see God. God has to open your eyes, and once you open your eyes to Jesus, it, the Bible says that you get regenerated and the Spirit of God indwells you. Now God himself is living inside of you, and what the Spirit of God starts doing is start replicating himself in you. And so from the inside out, you become more like Jesus. From the inside out, all of a sudden changes happen that, 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 that you are a part of, sure, but if you just let the Spirit of God do what he does, he will change you. And so we're going to see four things today that he does in people who genuinely come to Christ and who genuinely know him, who are in the know. All right? So today, what characteristics does God produce in believers that will assure them that they are in Christ? If I want to leave assured today that I know Jesus, what four, t- four, what four tests could I take that would give me that assurance? How can I know for sure that I am a Christian? Before that, we're going to go to the book of 1 John. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. If you're new with us today and you don't have a Bible, please don't feel awkward. There's a Bible right in front of you. It's for you. Pick it up and open it. Take it to the first couple pages. It'll tell you what, what page 1 John is on and get there. We'd love for you to see what we're talking about. 1 John chapter 2. Little book towards the end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 2. Watch as I read. My dear children, I write this to you 
so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We'll stop right there. Uh, it's like he's giving us a basis for everything else he's going to say. All right? He says, I want you to know, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have a fail-safe. All right? If you do mess up, we have a fail-safe, and the fail-safe is Jesus Christ. In fact, he is your advocate. He's going to say two things about Christ. The first one is, he is your advocate. It's really court-like language. And so here you are in the court of God. The Father is the presiding judge, presiding over his justice, okay, and his righteousness. And then you have, uh, uh, we, are, we are the defendant. And who is the prosecuting attorney? The prosecuting attorney is Jesus Christ himself. So here you have a court set up where God has skewed the court. But it's not so that you end up guilty. It's the opposite. And so when the judge presides over this court and, 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 and the prosecuting attorney looks at him and says, Father, I died for him. Would you look on me instead of him? And every time the father would say, absolutely. Absolutely, I'll look on you instead of him. When he sits there and he says, God, you remember you put me on the cross and, and all the sin of the world, all the sin of sinners is on me. And here's one of your children. And there's a transfer that happens. And so that he would get his righteousness for me and I would get his sin and you would look upon me instead of him. Do you remember that? Would you look on me instead of him? He becomes our advocate. And, and why can he become our advocate? He can become our advocate because he is our atoning sacrifice. Look at verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. The atoning sacrifice is the idea, the wiping away or removing of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made himself who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a transfer. All of our sin goes on him. All of his righteousness goes on us. So you can say, I will be advocate because I was the atoning sacrifice. So in conclusion, he's saying, I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to mess up. But if you do, we have a fail safe. What he's saying is sin is reconcilable through Jesus Christ. You can't miss this. Don't miss this in the part of the sermon because the rest of the sermon is really challenging. He is setting the basis for the whole thing. And he's saying, I have done something. If you fail, I can forgive you of your sin. And that will remain true through the whole sermon. And how can I forgive you? I can forgive you based on the fact that Christ died for us. Now, we've got a little bit of a problem here because he makes an interesting statement. He is the propitiation or the satisfaction or the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only ours, also for the sins of the whole world. It's kind of difficult to understand. He is, is Christ really the atoning sacrifice for every individual that walked on earth? Now, how could he send anybody to hell if, if he was? Maybe I ask it this way. Does Christ advocate for people who rejected him before God the Father in heaven? No. And so it's kind of hard to understand, but it probably has something to do with the idea that there are no special categories of people on the earth. Christ died for all categories of people, uh, every ethnicity, every race, whether you're on this side of the globe or this side of the globe, spin the globe. He died for every people equally, and everybody will be represented 
in heaven. Whether you're in today's time period or 500 years ago time period, every category of people or 500 years from now, he's died for all of them. And so we have the action, and this is the action of Christ's work on the cross, and the rest of the sermon he was going to look at is the purpose of that action. So here's the action of Christ's work on the cross, and the rest of what we're going to look at is why did he do it? What was the purpose? His purpose was to produce a holy people, to change people from the inside out. And he's going to give us four illustrations of what that looks like. And basically say, you can be assured that you know him if you have these four things in your life. So let's look at the first one. Assurance coming from keeping his commands. How can we be assured that we're in the family of God? We keep his commands. I can be assured by the fact that I keep his commands. Look at verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. You see that? We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does, not do what the com- what, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Assurance coming from keeping his commands. The one claiming that he has come to know him and yet does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Here, the idea isn't so much about what you say, but about what you do. You can say all you want, but if you don't do it, then it's not adding up. It's two sides of the same coin. I say I'm a believer. Do I follow his commands? It's like telling your fiance, or telling me you, you love your fiance, but you don't want to kiss her. What? <laughs> I, maybe you don't love your fiance if you don't want to kiss her. I deal with the other situation, which I love my fiance and I can't keep my hands off of her. You, you, know, you know what I mean? It's like, don't get married if that's the case. Both must be true. If you know him, you must obey his commands. And then he calls you out. If you don't follow his commands, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. You know what he's saying? like, Stop making it sound so pretty. Stop justifying it in your mind. Just call it what it is. You don't follow because you don't love him because you don't know him. But whoever keeps his word, God's love has truly been made complete in him. It's the assurance that comes by keeping his commands. I can say whatever I want, but until I'm following him, I'm not sure if that's true. You'll know they love me because they keep my commands. First, assurance coming from keeping his commands. Second, assurance coming from walking like Jesus. Look at verse 5, the second half of verse 5. This is how we know we are in him. There it is again. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, one which you have had from the beginning. The old command is the message you've heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Assurance coming from walking like Jesus. The one claiming to reside in him must himself also walk as he walked, is the idea. He's saying if you claim to to say you have a relationship with God, you're in the family of God, then, then, then you should look like Jesus. You should look like him in some way, shape, or form. 
Let, let, me, let me say it this way. If you went to work, let's say you went to work and you told your, your coworkers, somehow it gets out that you're a Christian, what response would they give you? Would they say, like, light bulb, oh, now I finally get it. Light bulb goes off. Now I understand why you don't cuss like the rest of us cuss. Now I understand why when we start talking about girls and what we did on the weekend and all these, you, like, walk away from those situations. Now I understand why when people get frustrated, you, you don't get frustrated. You, like, get patient and you're kind. You're, you're always loving. I understand. I can understand this whole picture now because now I understand that you love Jesus, you kind of actually look like him. You kind of walk like him. Now, or do they give you the other, the other way? Uh, hey, uh, somehow it comes out, you go to church. You? You go to church? Are you kidding me? What church is that? Because I ain't never going there. If that's what happens when you go to that church, then everybody should steer clear. Are you kidding me? After everything you've said, after everything you've done, done with us, you, you, you love Jesus, right? What reaction do you get when people find out? Does it all make sense to them because you're walking like Jesus? I mean, people apart from this room, because we all come in here, put, you know, we kind of button up our coats, come here looking. When you're out there, what reaction do you get? Are you walking the way that Jesus walks? Then he goes into this whole thing about a new command versus an old command. And what, what in the world's a command in the first place? It, John actually writes in John 13, same author, he, he, he says it, Jesus says this himself. A new command I give you, that you should love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so the new command's probably love. And in some way, shape, or form, this is a new command. In some way, shape, or form, this is an old command. What in the world's going on? How can they both be true? Oh, Moses gave this idea of love in the Old Testament, so it can't be new in that sense. Jesus reaffirmed it in the New Testament, so how is it new? It's new in the fact that it hasn't lost its freshness. It's new in the fact that Christ expanded the limits of what that love looked like. You remember Pastor Sean preaching on the Good Samaritan? Uh, throughout Jesus' whole walk on earth, he, he's expanding what this love means, how far it'll actually go. The washing of feet, giving a cup of cold water, uh, clothing people who are naked, not despising the least of these. Let the children come to me. It's a, it's a, higher, it's a higher calling, this love that he's talking about. And it's new in the idea that you can participate in it now. Because with the Spirit of God in you, you can actually participate in this amazing, exceeding love. So we have assurance as we walk as Jesus walks, namely loving one another. But what does that mean for our brothers? We can have assurance coming from not hating our brothers as well. Assurance coming from not hating our brothers. Go to verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother is in the, lives in the light. There's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the what? And he walks around in the what? He does not know where he's going because the what? Has blinded him. Assurance coming from hating, not hating your brothers. It's a love and hate relationship. When you come to know Jesus, all of a sudden, the people in this room just become closer to you. You, you love them. Every time I preach, I have like four ladies that come up to me. They're like mothers to me. They knew, they knew me when I was 14 years old. 
And they just say, thank God for you. I love these ladies. I don't have a mother. They're like mothers to me. But there's a, there is no blood connection at all. It is all Christ connection. And there's a love for that. I love that. There's brothers in this church that I'm really close with, and, and, and we go deep together, and, and they know my deepest and darkest, and, and we walk together. And I don't despise that. I love that. And there's people that come in, and you'll hear this sometimes, like, man, I just cannot get along with Christians. I just, I just can't connect with them. I know I'm one of them, but I cannot connect with these people. They call themselves Christians. And, well, why? Why can't you do it? Well, because they're hypocrites. Well, so are you. That's why we need Jesus. But I mean, you don't understand. I just don't, we don't connect on any level whatsoever. I, I just cannot, ah, just the goody two-shoesness about them. What is up with that? Why can't you connect with somebody who's a believer? Why do you despise people that, uh, that are supposed to have the same core belief as you? You're supposed to be able to be closer on the closest level you could ever be, and you can't connect with them? It just doesn't make sense. I've always pictured my life as here's one arm over here, here's one arm over here. These are the closest relationships I have. And I have a brother over here and another brother over here, and we're walking together, and we're heading this direction, and we're he- heading towards Jesus Christ. And as we do this, we carry each other's burdens together. We love each other. We exhort each other. And we walk together to that end. And I just cannot understand when people say to me, well, you know what, okay, I see what you're saying, but over here I have a friend who doesn't know Jesus, and over here I have a friend who doesn't know Jesus, and they're going that way, and I'm going this way, and here we go. Where do you think that's going to take you? Do you think that you can possibly move them forward when there's one on each side of you heading that way? Why is it the core relationships in your life aren't believers? Do you hate your brothers in that sense? Anyone claiming to be in the light while hating his brother is in the darkness. Why do Christians bother you? Why do you have a disdain at your core for them? Alternatively, the one loving his brother resides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But if you're hating your brother, the description is you're in the darkness you walk around in the darkness, you can't tell where you're going because you're blinded by what? The darkness. Assurance coming from not hating your brothers. Assurance coming from not hating your brothers is the third one. Now he does something kind of interesting here in verse 12. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have, been, you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then he starts over again. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, he kind of takes a special note here, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And so he kind of takes a second, takes a pause of everything as he's saying, and he's saying, I'm writing to three people here, three people groups, and he's saying, children, uh, your, your sin has been forgiven. You have known the Father. To fathers, he says, twice, you have known him from the beginning. And young men, he says, you have overcome the evil one. You're strong. The word of God resides in you. It's almost like he takes a second to encourage them. He uses, in every one of these phrases, he uses uh, the perfect tense, which is the idea of an action starting back here and carrying its way into fulfillment in the present. 
And Jesus is saying, this has happened in you. I know this has happened in you, and I know God will take it to completion. Why is he doing that? It's because he's, he, he knows in his audience there's like two groups of people. There's this one group of people over here who say they know Jesus, and they live life like the opposite of that. Here they say they know Jesus, they claim they have fellowship with God, but they live their life in the opposite direction, and those people need to be challenged. And so he's challenging them. And then there's people who, who love Jesus, and they really do love Jesus, and when they hear the exhortation, they start questioning, oh my gosh, do I know him? And he says, I want to encourage them. I got two groups of people here, and they're both in the church, and I'm trying to challenge one and encourage the other. Like a father who disciplines his child, and rightfully so, and then afterwards gives the child and embraces it, but I love you, and I know you can do it, and I believe in you, and, and you will produce these things, and I hate disciplining you, but I, but, I, but I love you, and you will become what I've dreamed you become. I believe in you. It's like he's speaking truth into their lives before it even happens, because he knows the one who's producing the truth in their lives. And we have the same demographic here. There are people in this church who love Jesus, and they'll hear this exhortation, they'll leave today shattered, oh my gosh, am I in the know? When in fact they are. And there's people in this room right now who, who say they know Jesus, and say they're believers in Jesus Christ, and say they're part of the family of God, and yet they live their lives in exact opposite of that. And it's not just a one-time occurrence, it is the pattern of their life, and they need to be challenged. If you're here and you're in that group that says, oh my gosh, am I, am I really in the know? And you're questioning, just think back to when you first came to know Christ. And, and think about where you are today. So here you came to know Christ, and here you are today. Are you a different person? Does it look different? Then take courage and assurance in that God has already started a work in you, and he'll be faithful to complete it. But if you tell me over here, this is when I came to know Christ, this is who I am today, and I look like the same person, nothing has changed, and there's a problem. Because the Spirit of God is supposed to come inside of you and change you from the inside out. And so he gives us one last characteristic. Assurance coming from not loving the world. Assurance coming from not loving the world. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Assurance coming from not loving the world. How can I be assured that I am in the family of God? You don't love the world. If anyone might love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What he's saying is loving the world and loving God, both those statements cannot coexist in the same person. Just like you have light and darkness that cannot coexist at the same place, if you walk into the room, it either has light or it's darkness. They cannot coexist in the same room. Loving the world and loving God cannot exist in you at the same time. They cannot coexist. Then he gives an explanation to that. He describes the lust of the flesh. 
illicit bodily appetites, the lust of the eyes, a covetous materialistic nature, the boasting of uh, the boastful pride of life, the proud, ostentatious way of living. It says those things don't come from God. They come from the world. The first two you can hide. They're kind of internal. The last one is external, and everybody can see this one. They're not from God. He says, the world is passing away. This is such a perfect song. The first song we sang, that wasn't even organized. God just did that. When I was studying for this, I thought of that song. We're just the passing through. We used to sing when I was a kid all the time. The world is passing away. The world is a dying reality. Don't cling to that. As believers, we're not to cling to this world. We're not to cling to anything that's temporal. We cling to him who's eternal. And so it's the idea of, of living this world and then grabbing on to stuff and putting our hopes and our desires in that, whether that's sinful or whether it doesn't have to be sinful. It can be something material. And, and I'm grabbing on. This is where I have my hope and this is where I get my fulfillment is in these things. No, he says. Your fulfillment should be in a residence in heaven, not on earth. Because whether you have a house and you build an extension on it or, or you make a new, a new kitchen or a new bathroom, you do realize all that's going to burn. It's going to burn one day. It will pass away. And so in my heart, although I still need a house and I still live in a house and I still paint my house, I don't, you know, kick it or something. I, I, I mean, God's given me these things to be a steward of. My hope is not in this home. My hope is in a heavenly residence. I think of my son, my son, my daughter at the age of two would have jumped out of a helicopter in a parachute. You know what I mean? She's like, she doesn't see fear, you know. My son is the opposite. He's much more conservative in his bent, you know. And so Audrey would go to the playground. Audrey would, you know, find ways to slide down the slide, head first, you know, feet first, you know, a flip, whatever she could do to make it more dangerous, she would do it. And my son would be the kind of the kid, he's on the slide, and he's like holding on the side of the, and then he'd go like an inch and he'd hold on some more. And, he, and he said, finally, after like five minutes, he gets to the bottom. I'm like, son, you just ruined the whole slide. <laughs> then he went up again, and this time he, he let go, you know, for like a second at a time. And, 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 and well, that's good, son. You got it down to two minutes now. And, and, and eventually he learned that he could go down the whole slide without holding the sides, right? And sometimes we go through this world, we're holding on to things. We're holding on. We're trying to grab on the rails. This is where I'm putting my hope in. No, 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 no. Put your hope. And something that is eternal, not something that is t temporal. What things are in this world that you cling to maybe a little too tightly? What things are in this world that if God asked you to take your hand off of it, it'd be hard to, to let go? Can you let go? And so we see four areas in our lives that can bring us assurance that we are in the know. According to this text, four places in our life that can bring us assurance. How can someone be assured that they are truly a part of God's family? How can someone be assured that they are saved, that they are an authentic Christian, that they are genuine believers? How can they be assured of that? They can be assured by seeing these things in their lives. They keep his commands, they walk like Jesus, they don't hate their brothers, and they do not love this world. You see, a well-rounded Christian is really a square. There's four corners to a square, and there's four characteristics of a Christian in this text. One, they keep his commands. Two, they walk like Jesus. Three, they don't hate their brothers. And four, they don't love this world. And so the simple question becomes, 
How do you measure up? How do you measure up? Some of you know that I've been working really hard. In June, it'll be three years that I've working, been working really hard to um, get myself into what I would call a healthy place. Um, I don't call it weight loss. I don't call it training. I, I just want to get to a healthy place. And in June, it'll be three years. And every Friday, I wake up in the morning and I go to approach the horrible um, Satan-created mechanism called a scale. <laughs> and, I, and I have a list, and this is 103 straight weeks now. I write down the date. I write down what, what, the weighing, what, what my weighing was and how many miles I did that week, how many miles I walked or jogged or ran or whatever I was able to do that week. And it started off by going two miles a week, then I went to four miles a week, then I went to six, and now it was like ten. Ten is the goal. And uh, whether I do routes around Valley Bible Church, you might see me. I do two-mile routes. There's 3.3-mile routes. There's routes in Vallejo where I live. I make sure that if I'm doing three times this week, I'll do three times the 3.3 miles. Then I joined a gym, and there's the, 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 uh, the treadmill, and there's the elliptical machine. I can read while I do the elliptical machine, and so I can do my homework in, and I can get my miles in, and there's some weeks where I decide I'm going to fast. I'm not going to eat this on, I'm not going to eat for dinner on, on Wednesday. Or I start doing that crazy stuff. And, and I'm just over and over and over again trying to, trying to do something to get healthy, okay? And it's amazing to me. There'd be weeks where I'm like, man, I eat so good on Monday. I eat so good on Tuesday. Wednesday, huh? Well, Thursday was like, you know, I fasted to recover from Wednesday because I had bad on Wednesday. And here comes Friday, and I'm stepping on the scale, and I know it's going to be good. And I read the numbers like, that is wrong. <laughs> and I take the scale, and you will say something different. That is wrong. I'm telling you, it's impossible. I put it back down. I stand on it, do it like five times. And it is wrong. <laughs> then there's weeks where I, like, I don't do well. I don't eat well. I didn't, you know, and I exercised, but I didn't. I walked. I didn't run. And, and, and then I step on the scale, and I think, oh, this is going to be horrible. And I lose a pound. What is up with that? How does that work? Give me that diet. That's the one I want. You know what I mean? And so whether I think I did good or I think I did bad, I step on the scale, and you know what? It is the equalizer. It, that you can argue with it all you want, but it's not going to change. It's just going to tell you the truth. And really, the scale of your faith is your life. All right? You step on the scale and to indicate what it is about you. What do you read? Do you read believer in Jesus Christ or not? And the way we can tell is by stepping on the scale of your life, which is how do you live? What does it look like? When you stand on it and when it reads you, don't argue with it anymore. What does it say? What does my life say about me? Do I know him and do I not? Because we can argue with it all day long, but it is the great equalizer. It just tells you the truth. And you say to yourself, man, I can't, I can't deal with that. I mean, what are you asking me to say? That I'm, I, I may not be in the know? That all these years, I've been going to this church for 10 years, and you tell me all these years I've been going to this church, and I haven't been in the know? I can't tell you what the scale says. Only you can tell yourself that. But I will say this. If you are at a place where you say, I've been here for 10 years, and I don't think I've ever known him, I've got an answer for that. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can leave today with assurance. But if you just say, man, my life, and I step on the scale, and it doesn't look good, but I, you know, I don't believe what it says, I don't have an answer for that. 
had a sweet lady come to me last week in tears after the service, and she said, I got in my car, and I was leaving, and, and I just had to come back and talk to you. She says, I, I've been struggling with assurance of my salvation for years. And I said to her, well, this is going to be the series for you. This is going to be eight weeks straight of us just telling you what the Bible says somebody looks like when they're truly saved. And you can just kind of mark off your list. I got that one. I got that one. God produced this one in me. Man, look at how he's, what he's done. I remember when he made that, when he, when he changed that in me. I remember that day. Man, I look so different than before. And you can leave going, boom, God's stamp of approval on you. You have assurance that you're in the faith. How can someone be assured that they truly are a part of God's family, that they're truly saved, they truly are authentic believers, genuine Christians? Well, from this text, they see four things in them. There's many more, but they see these four things in themselves. They keep his commands. They walk like Jesus. They don't hate their brothers, and they don't love this world. Now, it doesn't mean that they don't mess up at times. But the pattern of their life is to be these things. And by the way, when you do mess up, do you remember the foundation? His atoning sacrifice. We have a fail-safe in Jesus Christ. A well-rounded Christian is really a square. Keeping his commands, walking like Jesus, not hating his brothers, and not loving this world. Let's pray. I do realize the weight of this. And as you evaluate or step on the scale for your own spiritual life, it may be overwhelming to see what you see. And I would just tell you that if you're willing to deal with God on a truthful, honest level, he's willing to meet you there. I'll be here. There'll be some elders in the front, some counselors. For sure I'll be here. If you, before you leave, why don't you get that assurance that you're in the family of God? Father, I'm thankful that you left us with this fail-safe. That there is an atoning sacrifice in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our advocate. That if we'll place our faith in him, that his work on the cross is my righteousness and all my sin was placed on him so that I could have righteousness. And acknowledge that before you. You'll give us salvation and you'll begin to produce these things in our life because that's what you do. You send your spirit and you change us from the inside out. Oh, I pray, be with the person who is dealing with their inner soul right now and debating if they should do anything about it. In Jesus' name, amen.